Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having Mark Jones to talk about Knowing Sin, his book that I believe is actually coming out officially tomorrow um, from this recording. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. And, Mark, as this is your first time as a guest on our show, would you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I uh, from... Uh, hail from South Africa, but I've lived in Canada most of my life. I've also lived in the United States, actually, in Wisconsin. I went to university there, uh, mainly to play soccer and do a little bit of studying. And then I went back to school in South Africa and also Holland. So if you detect an accent, uh, it would maybe be a combination of um, different countries. The universal accent, maybe. Um, And I'm a pastor of a PCA. Uh, Presbyterian Church in America uh, congregation in Vancouver for about 15 years now. We have uh, two sites, one in Surrey. I preach at 9 a.m. Then I get in the car after our service, drive to Vancouver, preach there. We don't we do not do the um, video thing. We haven't got to Mark Driscoll proportions yet. Um, and I like to write a little bit on the side just to stay out of trouble and coach soccer, which sometimes actually gets me into trouble. So otherwise, that's pretty much my life. Four kids and a wife and um, like um, red wine, if that's allowed to be stated. It is It is allowed to be stated. And um, uh, we're going to try to keep you out of trouble. So we're going to talk about one of the books that you authored. And so uh, as Jimmy mentioned, we're going to talk about a book you wrote called Knowing Sin. So just to start off our a conversation on that subject. Why did you decide to write a book on sin? I wrote a book on sin uh, because I've, I've done quite a bit of study actually in uh, the Puritans and I've, I've done a fair amount of study specifically in Christology and the attributes of God. And I've been uh, editing a book for Crossway where we're going to republish uh, an unabridged version of Charnock's Attributes of God uh, and the more I've been studying these doctrines, the more I've, I've seen so much emphasis in the Puritans on sin and what sin is, what sin isn't. And I thought, you know, I've, all of this work I've done, I feel like I've got a lot of research in the background on sin. It, as a pastor, it's a major aspect of my ministry. As a human being, it's a major aspect of my life as a father, as a husband. So I feel well-equipped in a sense. I don't like to say that in too much of a joking manner because, of course, it's, it's deadly serious sin. But uh, I, I kind of feel like I have the personal as well as the s- maybe scholastic or scholarly tools to make a contribution. So um, I think one of my major goals in, in my writing ministry is to take complex ideas, um, scholastic, reformed theology, but also as a pastor, how do you make it accessible to the average layperson? And, and so this book's meant specifically for, for Christians in the pew. And as you mentioned, a majority of your study has been in the Puritans particularly. So 
why did you make use of them? Probably because you've studied them, but also why are they of such benefit in discussing this subject? The Puritans are, well, I like, I'd like to be like a, a Puritan, a diet Puritan in the sense of these guys were, were fabulous scholars. I mean, they were, they were trained at, uh, from a young age at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, and they, they were so well versed in the, the medieval um, Reformation, early church um, theology. So they, they have a massive theological apparatus they're working with on, on topics like sin or God or whatever it may be. But, you know, most of them were pastors. They preached. And so you see in their writings this combination of, of like deft theology, precise theology, but then they will have these memorable turns of phrase like Thomas Watson, for example, or Stephen Charnock, sometimes even Owen, though, maybe not so much. You know, you need to read a few hundred pages to really get Owen's genius, um, whereas you can pick up some of these Puritans and, and read a few pages and, and it's just it's really catchy the way they say things. And they allowed themselves to say um, certain phrases with a bit of shock value sort of like a tweet from Tim Keller, but <laughs> they would couch that in, you know, a massive um, discourse on, okay, this is what I do mean by that, and this is what I don't mean by that. Yikes. So, yeah. You mentioned in uh, your last response to me that uh, you don't want to joke too much about sin because sin is deadly and it's it's serious, and so... Uh, borrowing off of that phrase you use in asking this question, what is sin? And what do you think Christians misunderstand about sin? I would say that the first thing we, we you know, when we ask about sin, probably, you know, a lot of us, uh, at least in my tradition, we, we have the catechism answer ready. You know, sin is any want of conformity or lack of conformity or transgression against the law of God. So it's, it's, it's not living up to God's law or it's breaking God's law. And one of the major words that we use in at least the Reformed tradition to discuss sin is, is the concept of uh, privation. It's a Latin for privatio, and it's basically used to, to contrast um, the idea of um, sin's substantiality and 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 the idea that sin isn't a thing and yet it is so powerful. Uh, it's not um, what we would call um, a, a substance that you can kind of uh, look at. And we, we talk about that with grace too. It's, it's the idea that um, there's a positive inclination towards evil, that when you are a sinner, you have a positive inclination towards evil. And the idea of positive inclination is not meant to be like a moral thing where it's good. It's just you are inclined to evil because you lack what is good. So it's it's two sides that you need to look at. Um, and I think once you understand that it's the lack of righteousness, but not just a lack of righteousness, a bent towards evil, you understand the twofold nature uh, of sin. And so um, the second part of your question, if I remember correctly, or what was that you were saying? Uh, what do you think Christians misunderstand about sin? Yeah, I think one of the things we misunderstand about sin is um, maybe the fact that 
when you when you sin, you are not just performing an act. Now, I know most people who've done a bit of studying would, would acknowledge this. You read the Sermon on the Mount, but one of the things I really strike home a lot at in the book is the idea of what we call voluntary and involuntary acts of the will. And there's a sense in which all acts of our mind are, are voluntary because they're acts of the will, but then there's sometimes involuntary acts improperly considered where you have an evil thought and you have an evil thought and you don't allow that thought to escalate. The question is, was that evil thought a sin? And, and the Puritans and the Reformed tradition have said, yes, that's still a sin because everything is an act of the will and we're responsible for that, but it's not on the highest grade of sin. So there are degrees of sin. And a lot of times you'll see people say, oh, well, all sin is sin in God's eyes. but. It's clear to me there are aggravations of sin. So there is a chapter on um, how sin can be aggravated. So you can have a lustful thought, but then you can meditate on that thought. And that thought can even become an act. But the problem is actually right at the beginning is you are responsible as well for your thoughts, not just your acts. So that to me is a big um, thing regarding the doctrine of sin that many evangelicals, I don't think want to quite admit. Um, so there's many more, but that would be the main. What would you say is the first and worst sin? To me, the first and worst sin is, is not pride. A lot of times there was a debate between the Reformed theologians and the Roman Catholic theologians. I think uh, Francis Turretin in his uh, institutes has this question. And, you know, he'll say we, we deny against the papists uh, that pride was the first sin. The truth be told, the, the first sin was unbelief. It was disbelieving God's word. And it is therefore the worst sin because really, what is it that takes us from a state of nature to a state of grace? It is faith. Faith is what reconciles us to God. Before we can love God, we have to have faith in God. In the order of the graces given to us, faith comes before love. And so faith undoes what is our principal problem. We don't believe. So Adam's problem in the garden was, was manifold when he sinned along with Eve, but it began with not believing God's word. And a lack of belief that God would act upon his threat is what then led to him uh, sinning. And all of those sins end up being a violation against God's commandments in different ways. So um, definitely the classic Reformed um, Protestant view would be unbelief is the first and worst sin. Mm. What sins do Christians tend to struggle with the most and why? And perhaps uh, if you're able, can you think of any examples of how the Puritans might have uh, elaborated on a topic like this? One of the reasons I really like the Puritans is because they're pastors and they're, they they understand human nature so well. And so you, I, I read a long time ago, I was writing a Puritan theology uh, with Joel Beakey and I, I did the chapter on uh, sinfulness of sin uh, regarding the Puritans. And Thomas Goodwin was a bit of a guide for me there. And he talked about different sins for different people. Uh, rich people are prone to certain sins, poor people to other sins, men, women, boys, girls, the elderly, uh, and so on. And, and so while it's true that the seed of every sin is wrapped up in our hearts as human beings, that we're capable of anything apart from the grace of God, there's also a sense in which, depending upon our state, 
in life, we are prone to certain sins. Uh, a young man hitting puberty from 13 onwards, who knows, to um, whatever age, will find lust can flare up in him in a, in a way that it doesn't for a five-year-old. And maybe when you're 50, let's just throw out a number, you're not lusting maybe in quite the same way that you were when you're 15. And it's not to say that lust has been altogether removed, but there are states of life. And um, people can be miserly in certain states of their life or context. And some people can be uh, just overspending. They can be wasteful, uh, prodigal, so to speak, and so on. So one of the the things I think is really important when discussing the doctrine of sin and, and our preaching is to be specific about sins, but also specific about the types of sins that affect certain people. Uh, someone in a position of power may be prone to uh, abuse of power. Uh, someone in a position under that power may be prone to a lack of honor and, and so on. So that's one of the things I think we need to be very careful about when we discuss sin is it's different effects upon different people. You already answered this question in part earlier. Um, are all sins equal in God's eyes? And can you flesh out the answer that you gave earlier? Because the answer you gave was no earlier. But can you flesh that out a little bit sure. for us? Absolutely. So uh, you, you, even, the, even our, I think every person understands this. You don't even have to be a Christian. You can understand there are greater aggravations. So the law even allows for that with first degree murder, second, third, and manslaughter. And we, we understand that uh, if I were to uh, look at a scenario of a man um, let's say he, uh, a 19-year-old boy not married, sleeps with a 19-year-old girl not married. That is a sin. They've committed fornication. But what if somebody's a pastor of a church and he's married and sleeps with a woman who is also married but not his wife? That sin is aggravated by the very fact that, A, she is another man's wife, therefore they have broken that fleshly bond between the two, but also his state as a pastor and authority and leader and example to the flock is also um, heightened his responsibility to God's people and brought uh, great disgrace upon the church. So we have like aggravations in terms of who is committing the sin, uh, who is necessarily involved in when you commit this sin. So are you bringing down, let's say, uh, hundreds of people? or dozens or some, or is this a sin against yourself and God, uh, which is sometimes the case. So we, we do understand this, I think, in terms of natural law, but we also understand in terms of the church and the different responsibilities. So an elder has greater responsibilities to fulfill the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 than the average layman. Uh, not that they shouldn't, and so on and so forth. So Jesus speaks about this, greater sins, um, he also talks about different punishments. It'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. So you look at all of these different aspects of greater punishments, greater sins, um, who's sinning, why, and the context, and you, you realize quite quickly that not all sins are equal in God's sight. And so what Judas did was more aggravating than a child stealing a cookie from the pantry. Mm. You also alluded 
to this, uh, but again, can you further flesh out what is the difference between inward temptations versus outward temptations? One of the uh, first uh, Puritans to sort of distinguish this for me, and I, I always kind of understood it, but John Owen speaks about this in relation to Christ, that an outward temptation is a thing indifferent in and of itself. It's it's neither uh, it's neither sinful nor non-sinful to the, the person. So uh, Jesus experienced outward temptations as, as the devil solicits him with various temptations. They are proposed to Christ. Uh, Christ is not responsible for those temptations in the sense that he's necessarily sinned because a sinful proposal came from someone else, that is the devil. Now, if Christ were to inwardly desire things contrary to God's law, that would be a sin. So if he were to lust after something that was not agreeable to God's law, that would be a sin. That is why he says, I only speak the words the Father has given to me. I always do the things pleasing to the Father and and so on. So when it comes to temptation, we may have a temptation that is not our fault. Someone can tempt you with all sorts of things. That doesn't mean you're responsible. But if our heart leads us astray to something that isn't agreeable to God's law, we are responsible for that temptation, and therefore we have sinned by allowing ourselves to be drawn away from God's law to something that is not agreeable. That is why whether heterosexual or homosexual lust would be um, something that arises from a sinful disposition. And James speaks about this um, type of desire. Epithymia in the, in the Greek uh, is an inward desire, and it's usually in the context of sin um, as opposed to um, a desire that isn't sinful. So uh, it's important to distinguish between sinful and non-sinful desires. Some desires are good. The desire um, you know, a man has for his wife would be a, a good thing given by God, a desire a man has for someone else's wife would be a bad temptation. And a wife soliciting a man and the man doesn't give way to that temptation means the man is innocent in that and vice versa, um, whether a man did it to a woman and so on. So I'm pretty sure most people understand what sins of commission are, like the actively uh, doing something wrong, but can you explain what sins of omission are? Yes, the sins of omission, uh, I think is it's really important for pastors to, in their prayers, actually in prayers of confession and pastoral prayers, is to, to bring this up, to remind us that uh, it's not enough to simply, the Christian life is not about not doing things. The Christian life is is also positive righteousness. So Ephesians 4 is a really good chapter where Paul talks about, you know, let the man um, let a man no longer steal, but actually work so that he has something to provide. And you look at all of these negatives are filled in by a positive for the apostle. And so what we tend to do is we, we say, okay, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. But actually the way to not sin is to actually live righteously, positively. And so sins of omission are, are the failure to do the things required of us in each context, which is what makes Christ's work for us all the more remarkable. It's not so much that he didn't sin. It's that instead of sinning, he was always doing the things that pleased the Father. He was always obeying the law. He was always doing what was required of him in every circumstance. And uh, that's what is, is truly remarkable about how 
his life for us deals with our lack of righteousness, not just the sins we've committed. And another quick heading question. I feel like we're just, uh, we're getting a good appetizer of all different topics concerning sin, but how do Christians differ from non-Christians in committing sin? This was uh, this was very interesting, actually. I was reading uh, Johannes Macovius. Um, he has a, a book on different distinctions, and uh, he was a he was quite a colorful um, figure in the 17th century. And he he talks about how for Christians, our sins are worse in one sense than the sins of non Christians because we have um, what is called we 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 have greater knowledge and greater powers. So we know what God requires of us. And so we should know better, but we also have the Holy Spirit to keep us from sinning and sin's dominion has been broken. So in one sense, our sins are worse. The sins of unbelievers are worse in the sense that there's no brokenness in what they do. Christians have a sense of brokenness and regret and and repentance should accompany what they've done. But for non-believers, there's no repentance. There's no brokenness. And they sometimes rush into these things with, with, with no um, fear of God before their eyes when they do so. So uh, we do sin differently. Um, sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's, it's worse for the non-believer. Sometimes it's worse for the believer. It depends on how you look at it. So earlier, you had given a very specific and I think helpful encouragement to, to preachers in particular to when or when they discuss sin to discuss um, the various struggles that people may have at different stages in life. And this final question that we have, do you have any other encouragements, specific encouragements as it relates to our understanding of sin and sin in the Christian life and things of that nature? To me, the in my introduction, I make I try to make clear that it's it's really to your advantage to understand sin well, and it's not meant to be a book that's going to destroy your soul or uh, make you want to give up. But where you see some of the greatest displays of God's grace in the Scriptures, you see a very pronounced understanding of sin. So Isaiah six or Exodus thirty three, um, Romans three, places where sin is psalm 51 uh, sin is so obviously and graphically described at times but then you see how god's grace is is so much sweeter uh, so much more amazing his love his mercy compassion and so the more you understand sin the more you actually are going to understand how much god loves you what christ did for you as an intercessor when he goes before God, he's going as one who's fully aware of all of your sins and yet wants to go on your behalf to um, give you the assurance and confidence that you are a child of God. So to me, the encouragement to um, this book and specifically studying sin is to is to remember that God has it under control regarding his son and the spirit and that we need not fear Um, reading about how grotesque our sin can be because we're just going to be amazed more by God's grace to us. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been speaking with Mark Jones about his forthcoming book, Knowing Sin. Uh, In this podcast episode, we've tried to give an appetizer for the book, and we hope that you would buy it and feast upon the content that is within it. 
In this episode, though, we've talked a little bit about what sin is. We've distinguished between the first and worst sin. We've talked about uh, certain sins that Christians tend to struggle with and why. We've distinguished uh, between sins being different. We've talked about sins of omission and commission and how they're different and the differences between inward temptations versus outward temptations. We hope that this has been a helpful discussion to you. And we want to thank our guest once again, Mark Jones. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me on guys. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.